Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, New York Times best-selling author Neil Shusterman joins us to talk about his latest novel, Roxy. Above our world is a toxic wonderland where the party has raged for centuries. Humans know the partygoers simply as narcotics, opioids, drugs. But here, they are malevolent gods, toying with the fates of mortals. Roxy and Addison have made a wager to see who can be lethal the quickest. Isaac and Ivy Raimi are their targets. One Raimi will land on their feet. The other will be lost to the party. The only question is, which one? Dark and taut, this is the second book from Neil and his son, Jared Schusterman, who co-authored the acclaimed Dry. Before we start, a quick reminder. As this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there's been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. And now, here's the host of the event, Readings Marketing Assistant, Lucy Des. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Welcome, welcome. To everyone listening here at Readings, we are delighted to be able to chat with Neil Schusterman about his latest novel, Roxy, that he co-wrote with his son, Jared. Before I do get started, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which I work. I pay respects to elders past, present and emerging and recognise their connection to the land and that sovereignty was never ceded. Hi, Neil Schusterman. How are you? I am doing well. I'm very excited for the new book for publication day. I absolutely loved it. Uh, I just could not put it down. It's just, oh, there was so much going on. I was like, oh my goodness, just hurrying to read it all and get it all done because I just needed to know what happened, especially with that first chapter. What I like to hear. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, would you like to do a reading first? Yes, I'll uh, start with the opening chapter. Perfect. Uh, now, just to let you know where what the story is about, because if you don't have any concept of where the story is going, it throws you for a loop when you first start. But the, the basic idea is it's, it's a story about drug addiction told from the point of view of the drugs. The drugs are personified. What if the drugs were like the Greek gods? They exist in this eternal party in the sky and they come down to mess with us. So what were the personalities of these different drugs be like? Who would they be? And how do they interact with us? Roxy is OxyContin and she's beautiful and she's seductive. And if you fall for her, you fall for her hard and she doesn't let you go. So basically it's looking at drug addiction, a toxic love story. And we start with naloxone. Naloxone is the drug that they give you when you overdose to save you. I am no superhero but I can save you from the one who claims to be. I am no wizard, but I cast a spell that can bring back the dead, almost, and never often enough. I am, if nothing else, your final defense, your last hope when hope itself is spiraled into that singularity that crushes not just you, but everyone around you. And so here we are, you and I. The scene is set, never identical, but always the same. Today, it's a room in a house on a street that was born when dreams were milky white appliances and cars were like landlocked ships, too proud to ever be slung with seat belts. This was once suburbia, but it was long ago consumed by a gelatinous urban tsunami. 
the neighborhood struggles and sometimes even thrives. But this street, this street is dead. It has been sacrificed for the greater good. The trees on either side have already been taken down. Their trunks turned into firewood, their limbs fed into a chipper. Most doors and windows have been stripped and salvaged, leaving the homes with the deadest of eyes and gaping, silent mouths. Nearly a mile of this, and just beyond are bulldozers and rubble, and beyond that, towering concrete pillars reach skyward like the columns of an ancient temple. Because a freeway is coming, a six-lane corridor that will cleave the neighborhood in half right along this very street in a brutal rite of passage called eminent domain. When night falls, the doomed street is engulfed more completely than anywhere else in the city. And there you are in the fifth house on the left. You're not from this part of town, but somehow you found this place, drawn by darkness so dense you can wrap it around yourself like a blanket. Now flashlights illuminate a familiar tableau. One officer, two paramedics, and me. A medic leans over you, presses a finger to your neck. Hard to find a pulse, she says. If it's there, it's weak. This room was once a bedroom, but there's no bed, no dresser. All that remains is a warped desk and a broken chair that no one deemed worth saving. You lie on a carpet mottled with mold that has left it looking like a wall-to-wall -wall bruise. It is the very epicenter of abandoned hope. I can't detect any breathing, beginning CPR. Rats would complete the scene, but vector control has already been here with some of my more vicious cousins to kill the vermin. But they can't get rid of the roaches, no matter how hard they try. They are the victors of this world, the roaches, truly undefeatable. You, on the other hand, are defeated. How defeated is yet to be seen. 30 chest compressions, two rescue breaths, Repeat. The other medic prepares me for what I've come to do while the officer gives a description of you on his radio. They don't know who you are. I don't know who you are. But soon, you and I will be close. I will be inside you, a kind of intimacy neither of us wants but both of us need. It is, after all, my purpose. And you, you have no choice. Administering the naloxone. Make sure you get the muscle. I never miss. The needle plunges deep in your left thigh and I surge forth into muscle tissue, searching for capillaries that will carry me to larger and larger vessels. And yes, you are still alive. I do hear your heartbeat, slow, faint, but there. I ride the long sluggish wave of your heartbeat into the chambers of your heart and out again and up toward your brain. Only there can I save you. I will rip you free of the hold they have over you. They, the others, who care for you only as long as they have you locked in their embrace, as if you were nothing more than a child's tattered toy. They do not know love, only possession. They promise you deliverance and reward you with this. 30 compressions, two breaths, and me. It is you and those like you who gave them power and continue to give them power day after day, because who but you can generate enough current to feed the bright flashing lights of their eternal party? How could you not see that the others, my brutal cousins, are the cancer at the core of seduction, the void at the heart of your craving? 
They see themselves as gods, but in the end, they are just like me. Nothing but chemicals in complex combinations, perhaps, but still no more than tinctures, distillations, and petty pharma. Chemicals designed by nature or by man to tweak your chemicals. If they live, it is only because you gave them life as well as the license to end yours. And if they act in roles beyond their purpose, it is only because you place them upon the stage to perform. Thus, the stage has been set. The audience cool and dispassionate, waiting to be entertained, but too jaded to believe it ever will be. But we must try, must we not? So good. I'm sure everyone in the audience is thinking, chills, I'm captivated already. It's just... Oh, yes. such a good first <laughs> opening chapter. I just, I couldn't stop reading after that. I just had to know what happens. So the story is clearly a very interesting concept. How did you come up with the idea for Roxy? Well, Jared and I, my son Jared and I had written dry and we were sitting and, and we had planned a week together. See, we live on opposite sides of the country. So he flew out to spend a week with me in Florida just to focus on coming up with an idea. And the first day, we started talking about subjects that we wanted to address. And we thought about the opioid crisis, which is, you know, is everywhere. And we thought, well, how can we tell a story about that that's, that hasn't been seen? I mean, there's so many stories about drug addiction. You know, how do you tell a new story about that? Uh, well, I thought to another story that, that I had co-written with my other son, Brendan. And it, it was a story collection called Violent Ends. And the whole concept was 17 different authors are brought together each to write a short story about a school shooting. And the whole point was that it wasn't about the shooting. We're given the facts of what happened and each of us would take a different aspect of it, whether it was, you know, what the day before was like, or how did this character who, who, who did this terrible thing, you know, did he have any friends? You know, all the different things around him and not the actual event. And Brendan and I thought, what if we told the point of view from, told the story from the point of view of the weapon? What if the weapon had a personality? What if the weapon knew what was going to happen, but didn't have a voice to tell anybody, but didn't have a voice to stop it? And how, how tortured that weapon must be, knowing what its purpose is and terrified of what it's going to be used for. So having written that story, which was a, it's a very successful story in that anthology, we thought, well, what if we take the drugs and do the same thing and give them a voice and, and give them personalities and personify them? And then we started thinking, well, you know, OxyContin is, is you know, one of the biggest problems, especially with prescription medicine. What would OxyContin be? And we thought, well, what if it's this, this beautiful, beautiful woman who can take away your pain but also once she does, she doesn't, she doesn't release you and you fall and you fall for her. What would happen if she fell for you? And so we started developing it from there and we started thinking about a number of the other drugs and who would be at this party? Oh, well, there's Al, you know, Al is alcohol and he always greets everybody at the door. He's been around forever. Everybody knows Al. And so we started this developing the personalities of, 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 of the drugs and we decided the way that we would tell it was to have it from in first person, from the drug's point of view. But then when we were in the real world, 
third person from the point of view of the human characters who are just living their lives. I mean, they don't relate to the drugs as, as individuals. So we see their very real world juxtaposed against the world that the drugs are seeing. So it's sort of fantasy combined with reality. And it goes back and forth between the two. And once we had that concept and knew how we were going to tell it, the story just took off. We started, we planned a, a week to come up with an idea. We came up with our idea on the first day and just started writing. Incredible. I think it must have just really flown. And you can really feel that when you're reading the book of just how it really flows. And it was incredible. My favorite um, drug that you wrote was um, LSD. I really enjoyed. Lucy. Yes, Lucy. Yeah, I love, I mean, my name's Lucy, so, but yeah, yeah. I, really, I really loved her character. That was really fascinating. So She was a fun character to write. One, one of the things that we did was we gave each of the the side characters who aren't really, you know, part of the main story, but are there, we gave them sort of their own little, like uh, short monologues, like short stories where they get to tell their story, who they are and, and, you know, what, what they were created to do and when, and seeing things from their point of view was, it was really fascinating. I think those yeah. are my favorite chapters actually. Yeah. Like the Coke well, brothers and Coke just brothers. So <laughs> loved them as well. <laughs> Um, so how much research went into um, writing this book? There was a lot of research. I mean, we had to research uh, what each of the drugs do, how they're abused, uh, what withdrawal is like. Yeah. Uh, you know, all, you know, just so many different things in, in the process of writing the story. We want it to be authentic. Even though the story is told in this fantastical way, we felt it very important to be authentic as to uh, how how these addictions happen and and how different people can get drawn in. You know, you, you, when you think of people addicted to drugs, you think of a certain type of person. But the thing is, that's not what's what's happening. I mean, people you'd never think would end up with a drug addiction are becoming addicted to these drugs. And they're, and they're you know, they're starting with painkillers because they have a back injury and then their insurance doesn't pay for it anymore. And then they go get heroin because that's the only thing that can feed this addiction that was started by the painkillers. And suddenly, you know, ordinary everyday people are finding themselves addicted to these drugs. So, you know, it was important to get that point across too. Yeah, absolutely. What was the weirdest thing you Googled for this book? The weirdest thing that I Googled was withdrawn drugs. Okay. Yeah. What drugs no longer exist? What medications were so bad that the formula for them was destroyed? And there's a lot of them. Yeah. There's yeah. An, there's, and, and the reasons why, you know, drugs that were meant to do one thing and then gave some, then, and then ended up causing cancer, quaaludes, which was, which was originally, uh, to help sleep ended up becoming one of the most abused drugs in the 1980s. That character is, is sort of like the boogeyman of the story because everybody says, you know, you better be careful or you'll end up like Lude. Yeah. And, and Lude is, you know, they say that he is imprisoned, uh, you know, above the party forever. Uh, kind of like Prometheus, you know, chained and, and never to be set free. And so Lucy and Roxy go up to find him and he is there and he's kind of creepy Hannibal Lecter kind of character up there who's been, you know, who's held by the uh, by the caduces, you know, the snakes of the medical caduces. And he's held there in, in their grip. 
Googling all of these medicines that no longer exist and why was the strangest thing. I can imagine. Yeah, I had to I had to Google Lude to find out what it was. <laughs> um, so this is the second book you've written with Jared. You wrote Dry. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you find writing with your son? It's great. I mean, it's a bonding experience. He's very talented and we work really well together. And it's not like he goes, writes, you know, one character and I write another character. We trade off. So if I created a character's voice, the next time we get to that character, he'll take over and he'll be able to match the voice. If, and same thing with him. If he's created a character, I'll match the voice when it's my turn to work on that character. So, you know, there's points at which you really can't tell what he wrote and what I wrote. And that's, you know, that it's a great collaboration. That's so good. Yeah, absolutely. Did you find it easier writing Roxy after collaborating on Dry together? Yeah, I mean, actually, it was pretty much both the same. I mean, I was very surprised how smoothly Dry went. And Roxy went just as smoothly. I, I, I mean, I knew that he was a really good writer and I knew that working together would be a great experience, but Dry just flew by. I mean, we just were on the same wavelength in the entire book. And Roxy was pretty much the same. I think Roxy was a little bit harder because our concept was a little bit more complex than our concept with Dry. So trying to figure out how to make that world of the drugs believable, you know, the world building in that took a little bit longer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, Who was your favorite character to write? I really loved, I, I did most of the, uh, most of the interludes of the side characters. And so those were the most fun to write. I think my favorite ones would, were, was Phineas, which is Morphine, Lucy and Mary Jane. I loved Mary Jane's character. Well, Mary Jane, you know, marijuana, she, you know, she's gone legit. She's, you know, she, she, now she dresses in a business suit and she, and she, and she's much more, uh, she, 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 she feels more like a lawyer now than, than, uh, than who she used to be. An, an interesting character. And all, all of those characters were just interesting to, to develop. It was so interesting to read as well. It was so funny, like, reading about Mary Jane, like, standing there with her hair back in her suit, thinking about the good old days when she was a bit more fun, but now she's she's gone legit. Now she has a job. You know, she's helping this guy who has cancer and helping him with his... Uh, you know, with his response to chemo. So she's doing something good. And that was one of the things we felt was important that, you know, we're, we're showing how dangerous these drugs are, but, you know, a lot of these drugs have positive qualities and have, and many of them were created for good. Yeah. You know, Oxycontin, as terrible as it is, it was intended to stop pain. Opioids still do, but it's, they're, they're dangerous when they're, when they're not, you know, regulated properly. It's a mix. I mean, there's this one chapter where where Roxy eases the pain of one of the main character's grandmothers. And we see this positive side to her, but yet at the same time, she's all about destroying people. So there's there's an, an ambiguity and an ambivalence there that we're playing with. Yeah, what I found really powerful is the way that you like made us sympathize with the drugs. And just like that they were just made it was so believable that they were real people to me can you talk a little bit more on why you wanted us to sort of sympathize with them if that was what you wanted you know even though they are negative characters they're the antagonists of the story you have to be able to relate to them you have to be able to understand 
who they are. I mean, it's, it's, it's for Roxy, it's kind of a tragedy. She always ends up destroying the people that she falls for. And then there's Addison, who is Adderall, who is, you know, a medication for ADHD, whose whole life has been about helping people. And he's tired of that. He wants to be a part of the party. He wants to do what the others do. And he has to sort of come to terms with with that. So his is a coming of age story as well. There are some references to the COVID pandemic in the book. What made you decide to include those? Because how could I not? We're living in a world that is coming out of this pandemic. You can't pretend like it didn't happen. If you do, then the book is is no longer relevant. Uh, You know, the book behind you, Game Changer, I was writing right at the beginning of the pandemic and I had to rewrite it. It came out last February, still in the middle of the pandemic. And the pandemic's in that one too, because, you you know, you, you, you have to create the world that people are living in. And we are living in a world that has just dealt with the most, the worst pandemic in a hundred years. Can't pretend that it didn't happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Oxycontin is another kind of pandemic in the US. And you yes. touched on this before, but what made you and Jared really want to write about it? I, th- you know, I think we all know people who have had issues with drug addiction, people who have, who have, have survived it, people who haven't. Uh, I think it's very relatable. And we wanted to help. We wanted to write something that was a good read, but at the same time, we wanted to scare people. I mean, we want you to read this book and be riveted by it. And then when you turn that last page, you say, I never want to go there, you know, and say you're at a party a year from now and someone offers you something and you hold it in your hand and you think to yourself, Roxy, and you give it back. Then we've done our job. Definitely worked for me. (laughs) I was definitely horrified. (laughs) Definitely. But also incredibly captivated. So from your extensive bio, what are you most proud of? Uh, the, the cheap answer would be all of it, every, everything <laughs> together. I would have to say Challenger Deep, which is uh, inspired by my other son, Brendan's experiences with mental illness. And that one is a very, very personal story and is a story that has helped a lot of people. I can't tell you how many people have come up to, to me and to Brendan and said, this book saved my life. And so I, I feel that, that that book is is the most meaningful personally to me. I haven't read that one yet. I will have to get onto it. Well, um, Scythe is my favorite series by you. Can you tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind it? I had written a book series called Unwind, which was which was right there at the beginning of this whole teen dystopia genre. There wasn't the, the genre when I wrote unwind, but the genre kind of grew around it because it came out the same year as The Hunger Games. And suddenly I was being introduced as teen dystopia author Neil Schusterman when I didn't, you know, there, there wasn't a genre when I started it. After writing five books in that series, I realized that I wanted to try, you know, just like with everything else, to do something different, something that hadn't been done. So I started to sort of uh, deconstruct the whole idea of dystopia. Dystopian stories always have this main thing in common. It's about the world gone wrong. And the teens in the story are the only ones who have enough hope and enough vision and uh, enough nerve to to do something about it. Well, we've seen that story dozens and dozens of times. The world gone wrong. 
okay, but what if the world goes right? What happens instead of our worst case scenarios, what happens if all of our best case scenarios come to pass? Everything that we hope for in medical science, in, in technology, in artificial intelligence, everything, we get everything that we want. What does that world look like? And what are the consequences of getting what we want? Because there are gonna be consequences. No matter what we wish for, there will always be consequences. So I set out to tell a story about a world where we've gotten everything we wanted and how that plays out. As I started doing research on it, I kept finding myself going down these Google rabbit holes that always seem to lead to life extension. There's so much research going on and trying to figure out how to stop the aging process. And I realized that it's not going to be too long before we figure it out. And which means once that's done, once we figure out how to defeat aging, the human race will technically be immortal. There's going to be consequences to that. I mean, first, overpopulation. We've stolen death from nature. So if we steal death from nature, we're left holding it. People are still going to have to die. But if they're not dying naturally anymore, we're going to have to make the decision who lives or who dies. How are we going to make that decision? Now, keep in mind, this was the whole idea was a non-dystopian story. So it couldn't be the government because that's dystopian. Couldn't be computers because that's dystopian. So I thought, okay, in the perfect world, who would decide? And I thought, you know, in a perfect world, the Jedi would decide. <laughs> the Jedi of death. What would the Jedi of death be like? They would be these regal characters who are honorable and enlightened. Everybody would respect them, and they would be the ones wise enough to decide who lives and who dies. And I called them scythes because a scythe is that, you know, that tool, that reaping tool that the Grim Reaper uh, uses. And I thought, well, they see themselves as the tool that society is using to thin out the population. So if they are the tool, they wouldn't be reapers, they would be scythes. And so that's why I called it scythe. And the story is about two teenagers who are taken on as apprentices to a scythe and have to learn the art of killing, but doing it with love and compassion and understanding why this solemn task must be done for the benefit of humanity. But of course, when you have that much power, corruption is bound to slip in. And so that's the world that they find themselves. And they find themselves in that perfect world that has reached its pinnacle and self-interest is starting to bring it down. And they have to figure out how to stop that. And it's so good. Everyone must read. I, I recommend it to everybody I know, especially people who are like, oh, I don't read a lot of young adult. Like, what would you suggest? This series. Just everyone, everyone has to read it. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I just had uh, lunch today with my American publisher and he said that this book series, the Scythe book series is defying uh, all logic in the sense that every year it's selling more and more and more. And usually that happens like if a movie comes out, it's all word of mouth. This yeah. series through word of mouth around the world is building and building and building. And it is in development as a movie with Universal, but it's still doing really well in spite of it because everybody's telling everybody else to read it. And there's nothing more satisfying for an author than to have word of mouth being what sells your book. So what are you working on right now? 
I am working on a short story collection within the Scythe world. Stop it. Oh my goodness. That's so exciting. Called Gleanings. Gleanings. Oh my gosh. Gleaning because gleaning is, you know, they don't call it killing. They call it gleaning. That's their euphemism for taking life. And so the the book is called Gleanings and there are a bunch of stories in there. You know, the trilogy is complete, but there's other stories within that world to tell. And so there's the backstory of Scythe Goddard, who is the big antagonist in the series. He's the bad Scythe. And uh, so we, we see him as a teenager. We see Scythe Curie as a teenager. There is a story about pets, because one of the things that I always get asked are, do, do, do pets get brought back? Do pets live forever? And I never address that in the book. So there is a story about that in, in the series. If any of you are familiar with author David Yoon, he co-wrote a story with me. And also Jared and his partner, Sophie, have written a story. It takes place in Spain because she's Spanish. And so we have Saith Gaudi and Saith Dali, and they are in a feud. Oh, my gosh. I cannot wait. That is, I'm getting my hands on that as soon as it's out. So exciting. So are you writing any more books with Jared? Not currently. He is doing his own book now with, with Sophie. They're, they're, they're working as a writing team together. And they have uh, this book called Retro that they are in the process of completing. I, I, I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to steal their thunder, but it is really good. That's exciting as well. Oh, that's wonderful. So could you tell us a little bit about your writing process? Uh, you know, I write everything longhand. As a matter of fact, let's see if I can find my notebook. Here it is. This is what I'm writing leanings in right now. I write longhand in a notebook. I do that because I just love the connection between pen and paper. And also it forces me to do a rewrite as I'm typing it in. So if I start on the computer, then that whole the computer is my whole life. I would rather be able to vary it. So I'll write a chapter and I'll type that chapter and end in, and then I'll revise it. Then I'll go back to the notebook and, uh, and I'll keep you know, doing multiple drafts until I finally get to the end of the book. And only when I'm at the end, do I go back to the beginning and start revising. It's a, it's, it's a process that works for me. Every writer has a very different process for how they do it. And there's no right or wrong way, whatever works for you. Yeah, absolutely. Would you call yourself a planner or a pantser? Uh, I, I'm in between. I'm in between a pantser and a plotter. I'm a plotzer, I guess. I, I, I always start with an outline. And then within the first 20 or 30 pages, I throw the outline away because the characters never want to do what I want them to do. <laughs> So they start taking the story in different directions. I start coming up with better ideas than I had in the outline. So the thing is, if you stick to your outline, then you end up not being open to better ideas that you have along the way. And you'll always have better ideas because you have more time to think about it. Usually the stories get to where I want them to go, but the path getting there is never the way that I thought it was going to go. And so uh, I'm discovering things along the way that, that I didn't realize about the stories. And that's exciting. That is exciting. I love when a character just sort of does something you would never have expected them to do in your mind. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, okay, that happened. (laughs) I'll tell you how that happened in Scythe. And it was it was Goddard. I I don't know how many of you have have read Scythe, but then I I guess this is a little bit of a spoiler, but it it gives you an interesting plot point. The, The characters were introduced to the rest of the Scythe and to all the other Scythes. And I thought, you know, Goddard isn't going to let this stand. He's going to mess with them. And I thought, what if, if I was Goddard, you know what I would do? 
I would say that the two of these apprentices, only one of them gets to be a scythe, and whoever gets to be a scythe has to kill the other one. I didn't have that as part of the story until Goddard got in my head and said, yeah, this is what I'm going to do to these characters. Completely changed the story. And it was exciting. That is exciting. It was, oh, it was so intense reading it. I can still remember just feeling panicked about it. <laughs> and the thing is, you, you know, you think that I had planned that from the beginning. It was a discovery that I made along the way. Incredible. So we do have a question from the audience. This question is from Patrick. From your research, what was the most insightful or interesting thing you found about the nature of addiction? Oh, that's a, that, that's a really good question. I, I would say, I mean, I, I mentioned it already that the type of people who are becoming addicted to painkillers are ordinary, everyday people, housewives and construction workers and your next door neighbor. They're not, you know, people who live out on, you know, in the streets in Skid Row, it's your neighbors that this is happening to. And that was the, the, the most eye-opening thing. That it's such a problem that it's, it's, it's infecting every aspect of society. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so we're coming to the end. My favorite question that I like to end on is, what is your last, current, and next reads? Okay, well, I am I am so steeped in Roxy right now that I can't see any. I can't think of anything else. My last read was uh, "This Is How You Lose the Time War," which is a really interesting science fiction book. Really, really well done. And what I'm going to read next, I, I, I'm not sure yet. When I'm done with the tour, then I get to start reading again. You might even see some books on your tour, right? Might be able to pick some things up in the yes. shop. <laughs> you know, when I go to bookstores, one of the things I always ask this booksellers is, if there was one book to read this year, what would it be? And they always put one in my hand, and that always becomes, you know, my next book. I I, I go by recommendations, and I, I, I it's always what someone has told me, what someone else was passionate about. That's what I want to read. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, usually mine is sight, so good to know. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us this evening for you, day for us. It's been so wonderful chatting to you. I'm an absolute massive fan, as you can probably tell. Pick up a copy of Roxy and Scythe and everything else in Neil's catalogue. They're all wonderful. Um, and on behalf of Walker and Readings, thank you to everyone for joining us. And thank you, Neil. Enjoy your night. And good luck with your tour. I'm sure it's gonna, you're going to kill it. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thanks. Bye. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast on our website. We'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production for this podcast was by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded. <laughs>